continue in thy presence, we do so humbly and reverently, coming unto thee as unto the very King of heaven. We thank thee that our Christ, our Redeemer, is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank thee, O Lord, that as we come to thee, we do so through our Lord Jesus Christ, as the risen, ascended, reigning Saviour of his people. And so, Lord, we pray unto thee this hour. We pray, O God, that thou would come now and sanctify this time. Lord, that thou would come and make use of it in the extending of thy kingdom. We pray, Almighty God, that thy kingdom would come. That it would come in the edifying and the feeding of the souls of thy people, the building of thy church. That it would come in the saving of the lost soul, the adding to our number such as should be saved. Lord in heaven, we look to thee now. Oh, we are not sufficient for these things. We confess our weakness we confess our inability. We confess, O oh Lord, how far short we come of being a fit instrument in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, O oh Lord, we pray this evening that we would be emptied out, that man would be poured out upon the ground. And as empty vessels, we would be filled with thy Spirit, that thou would give liberty in the preaching of the word that thou would give liberty in the hearing of the word, and that thy spirit would have free course and be glorified. Come, Lord, we pray. Do a mighty work in our midst, we ask of thee. Open thy word to us now, we plead with thee. For we ask it all, knowing that we can do nothing without thee, but praising thee that we can do all things through Christ Jesus that strengthens us. Do it, we pray, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Turn this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this passage that we read together in these first 23 verses of this chapter. <coughs> we have been tracing the person and work of Jesus Christ, catching glimpses, catching but moments of Christ over these last number of weeks. We have seen a little bit of the incarnation. We have seen something of the life of Christ. And we saw him die on the cross, the death of Jesus. The eternal Son of God came to this world. He took our humanity. He lived a perfect life in which he proved himself to be the Christ. And then he died a penal death. And all of it, all of it standing in the shoes, standing in the place of the guilty sinner. These aspects of the work of Christ that we have already considered are referred to collectively as Christ's humiliation. The fact that his glory was concealed from view. And we saw him condescend to take upon himself or frail humanity. With the death and the consequent burial of the body of Christ, which I'll mention in passing simply tonight says this to us. It proves that he, his death was a real death. It was no swooning on the cross. He was buried having died 
And at that moment we reached the deepest point in Christ's humiliation. We have by now established that the work that Christ came to do as the mediator of the covenant of grace, as the one who would go between God and his elect people, that it could only have been accomplished by one who was both God and man. Yet, as he lived and as he suffered in his life and as he underwent that eternal wrath of God in his death, it was his humanity that was very much in our view. His divine glory as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was veiled from our view. It was concealed. He had voluntarily taken upon himself the form of a servant in order to, to stand in the sinner's place. But everything that took place from the moment of his final step in the grave, that final moment in the grave, everything that took place from that moment on, all of it constitutes the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Now his deity is very much to the fore. Now he is the Son of God, seen in all of his splendour, in all of his glory. Now we see the risen, the exalted Saviour. The resurrection of Jesus Christ then was the first and most important step in that exaltation. So we come this evening to consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we want to think of its significance for you and I today. The resurrection of Christ was the crucial, pivotal moment between his humiliation, his going down and his exaltation, his rising up. We look then at this doctrine of the resurrection this evening under this heading the pivotal significance of the resurrection. Notice from this passage, first of all, the evidence for the resurrection. If there are any in our gathering who are unbelievers, perhaps you are exceedingly sceptical of such a thing as coming back from the dead. Well, the Apostle Paul anticipates such a problem and he begins by setting out some of the evidence, select choice bits of evidence for the resurrection. There were those in Paul's day who denied the resurrection of the body, that reunion of the body and soul in the next life. We're not clear whether those antagonists that Paul was dealing with here were the Sadducees who deny any form of afterlife, or whether they were philosophically minded Greeks who struggle with the concept of a general resurrection. Or maybe they were just simply atheistic rationalists. Whatever the case, whoever they were, they share the same blinded minds as many in our own day who would scoff at anything supernatural, and especially the resurrection, as being nothing more than fairy tale stuff. Yet, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus is something that the inspired writers of the New Testament scriptures have taken great pains to establish. 
There are two primary lines of argument that Paul appeals to as evidence in these verses. The first is the highest authority, the word of God. In verse 3 and 4 we read, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now it's interesting that Paul doesn't begin by saying that he has seen Jesus with his own eyes. He could have said that. He doesn't begin by pointing at the empty tomb and saying, well, you tell me where the body has gone then. He could have done that because the empty tomb was still stood there. <coughs> but his opening point is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ did not come by way of any man. It came by way of the revelation of God. God makes the gospel known to us. All that Paul has to say, we notice here that what, how he describes it is that which he has received. What did he receive? It's what he calls the gospel by which also ye are saved. Verse 1 and 2. The gospel. The gospel that Christ died. That he died for our sins. This is what we considered in detail last week. Christ took the punishment for the sins of his own people. The gospel that Christ was buried and that he rose again the third day. That's the gospel. That's it. That's all of it. In this statement that Paul makes concerning what the gospel is, there are two things that are beyond dispute. No one would have disputed them in the day in which Paul lived. Christ died. That was an historical fact. No one denied it. And that Christ was buried was likewise a fact. There are those who witnessed it. There are unbelievers who testified to it. Everyone knew it. They saw it with their own eyes. Jesus died and was buried. The word, or I should say rather that he rose again. That he rose again is something that causes people to stumble. You might have no problem tonight in unbelief saying, okay, I accept there was a man such as Jesus, and okay, I accept that he died. I even accept that he was buried. But I don't believe in the resurrection. That's just incredible. That's unbelievable. That's the... The part of the gospel that Paul's dealing with here that causes people to stumble in their unbelief. The word rose, he rose again. It has that sense of having been raised. The idea is that Christ's rising from the dead was permanent. It was the first resurrection ever to take place that would not result in the subject of that resurrection ultimately dying again. All of the other resurrections we read of in the Bible. All of the other people who died and were brought back to life again. Every single one of them went on to die again. Every single one of them, their bodies now lie as dust in the ground. To be resurrected at the last day. But this was the first resurrection to take place that would not result, not result in the subject dying again. Now what we're particularly interested in all of this for our purposes this evening is this. It all took place 
according to the scriptures. That's Paul's appeal to the highest authority. Not to the empty tomb. Not at this stage to those who were able to see him. But he starts with this. God tells us in his word that Jesus Christ rose again. One such scripture is Psalm 16. We sang this uh, verse earlier. There we read of the resurrection of the Messiah in these terms. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The word hell there speaking of the grave. Christ's body would not be left in the grave. During his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ himself testified to his resurrection. Christ speaking himself as the incarnate word of God. And he made a direct claim that he would rise again on the third day. Speaking of himself in the third person as the son of man in Matthew 20, 19, he says, the third day he shall rise again. There's the inspired word of God. Likewise, the apostles in their preaching heralded forth the truth of the resurrection as being of fundamental importance to the gospel message. In Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. There's that Psalm 16 being adduced as evidence, written, inspired testimony from heaven itself of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see then that the primary argument adduced by Paul in favour of the fact of the resurrection is the authority of the word of God. But the other primary evidence that he brings forward is the eyewitness testimony. In verse 5 to 8 we read this. And that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. We notice here that what we are reading of, what these eyewitnesses are speaking of, is not some mere spiritual encounter. They are said to have seen him. In the case of the first one mentioned, Peter, or Cephas as it is here, we know from Luke 24, 34, that Christ appearing to Cephas was a cause of great encouragement to the rest of the apostles. They said, the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And when they say indeed, it's a strong affirmation of the, of the belief that what had been reported was factual. It was credible. These were people who were contemporaneous. These were people who could go that moment and go to that tomb and they could look in and they could see nothing there other than the grave clothes folded neatly. And they said, the Lord has risen indeed. How do we know? He hath appeared unto Simon. It was a, a certain fact. There's no conjecture. There's no supposition. They're not deducing this from some range of circumstantial evidence. They know it to be true of a, as a fact. 
We know from the account in John 20 that Jesus appeared to his disciples, the reference to the twelve here uh, being a, a, really a title for the, the disciples, the inner circle. There was only 11 of them, possibly 10 of them. I think Thomas was absent that first time. But he appeared to his immediate disciples. And then we have these 500 brethren. Who they are precisely and what the occasion was is the subject of debate. But we know that Jesus went out of his way after his resurrection. Whenever he appeared to people, he appeared to Mary, he appeared to other of the women. And he was at pains to say to them, go and tell my brethren that I go before them to Galilee. And I will appear unto them there. It wasn't the twelve because he appeared to them at least once. So these brethren, perhaps, are these 500 brethren. But the importance in this reference to these 500 is this. Two things about them. There were a lot of them. 500 brethren. And not only that, many of them were still alive. and could be interrogated and questioned about their sighting of Christ. They were attesting to the sighting of Jesus themselves. The eyewitness accounts... The eyewitness accounts in many ways are of less authority than the word of God because, well really, as believers, we believe because God has said it with or without eyewitness accounts. So the word of God is of the utmost authority. But they are a crucial witness to the world. The world is unable to deny that there were people who lived in the days after Christ's death who were absolutely confident Certain, not deluded, but sure that Christ has risen from the dead. But then the writings of the apostles take these eyewitness accounts and they raise them to the status of inspired scripture. They are elevated to the status of the word of God. There's two examples I'll leave with you on this. The, uh, Luke, the gospel according to Luke. It opens with these words. Forasmuch as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. What's recorded in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, is the eyewitness account, inscripturated, in inspired, becoming the word of God. In 1 John 1, verse 1, uh, the Apostle John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled of the word of life. So we see that the eyewitness accounts of the life and the death and especially of the resurrection of Jesus become, under inspiration, the most compelling evidence of the truth of this historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But why does Paul spend so much time seeking to prove the truth of the resurrection? Well, it's because it's one of the most attacked doctrines in all ages, in all generations. This evening, if you're an unbeliever, you are already attacking this doctrine in your mind. You are already putting up the defences against it. I do not believe in the resurrection. Perhaps your argument 
Certainly the common argument runs along these lines, whether stated in these terms or whether in your subconscious this is how it runs. Because I have never seen such a thing, and because I have never known any man who has died and come back to life, not a single example have I seen or have I heard of. Therefore I refuse to believe this central claim of Christianity that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the argument. It appears in every generation. It appears in our day to day. But the truth of the resurrection is a fact for which the evidence is uncheckable. Even sceptics admit that the evidence itself, as far as evidence goes, for any historical fact, as far as evidence goes, well, yes, it does all appear to be compelling, but yet the sceptics still refuse to believe it. This evidence is a crying witness to the world of the truth of the Christian claim that we serve a living Saviour. That being so, this evening in our gathering you're faced with the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you're also faced with this unshakable truth that the soul lives on after death. And that the body and the soul will be reunited in resurrection. That's a crucial fact that you need to face tonight. This world is not the end. Death is not the end. Indeed, that fact, that's perhaps the explanation as to why so many in the face of such incontrovertible evidence and support refuse to accept the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Because it raises this unavoidable truth. If Jesus rose again then his body is right now, this moment, somewhere else. And that means there is a somewhere else. And if there is a somewhere else, then there is a life after death for both body and soul. That is a fact that you, if you're an unbeliever tonight, do not want to face up to. And if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then this confirms the truth of all the Bible. All that it has to say about your sin. All that it has to say about the Redeemer who came as the second Adam. Who came as the substitute for guilty sinners. All that it has to say about that final day of reckoning. Of torment in hell for the unbeliever. For body and soul. Of all who reject Jesus Christ. So examine your own conscience tonight and you will find that the resurrection of the body and the reunion of the body and the soul is something that just somehow or other makes sense to you. Whether you want it to or not, it's something that answers that question. Is this it? Is this life all there is? Friends, this is not it. There is life after death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves it. But moving on, we notice, secondly, the essential need for this doctrine of the resurrection. Verse 12 to 18. Verse 12 begins, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? This desire to disprove the resurrection of the dead in general appears to be the specific problem that Paul is now addressing. 
But in addressing it, he draws out just how central the resurrection of Jesus is to the entire basis of the true Christian faith. Interestingly, he now approaches this debate using a logical argument. He wants to show just how abysmal the end result would be if those denying the resurrection were correct. So it's as if he says, well, let's assume you're right. Let's assume there is no resurrection. Let's work this through and see where that leads us to. So here's his argument. First thing is this. If there is no resurrection, then there is no Christ. Verse 13 reads, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Now the conclusion here is unavoidable. If there is no such thing as a resurrection, then there cannot be a Jesus Christ. Whenever it says Christ is not risen, it's in the present tense. In other words, if Christ is not now presently risen, if he is not now living, by extension then, if there is no resurrection, then everything that Christ ever claimed becomes false. There's no resurrection, so there can be no judgment. There can be no heaven or hell. Is any of it believable? The next layer in the argument is this. If there be no Christ, then there can be no Bible. Verse 14 and 15. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith also vain? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. <coughs> the entire testimony of Scripture speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ as the Redeemer of sinful man. From Genesis to Revelation, that is the single message of the Bible. We considered a few weeks ago how the problem of sin entered into the world through the fall of Adam. We saw how the promise was given there at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. That there would be a saviour who would come to crush the devil and to solve the problem of sin. We saw how the promise was given. Right there at that time at the very beginning. And then all of the Old Testament scripture then testifies to that coming saviour. It tells of how he will be virgin born. It tells us how he is going to be the sin bearer for the sins of his people. How he will be the sacrifice that will satisfy divine justice and reconcile sinners to God. All of this is in the prophecies, as is his ultimate triumph, his leading captivity captive, in his resurrection and in his ascension. These words we sang. But if after all that was said of him in the Old Testament, if we find that yes, he comes, and yes, he lives, and yes, he dies according to the scriptures, but that then he remains there in the earth, corrupted, rotten, nothing but dust and ashes. Oh, then there is no truth in the Bible. If that is the case, then what Paul is saying here is that all of the preaching of the apostles is false. Pack up and go home. Either the apostles are being false witnesses, saying that God has raised Christ, when in fact they know that he hasn't. 
Or God is being false in revealing a message through the preaching of the apostles that is simply untrue. That's what Paul is speaking of here in these verses. Verse 15, we are found false witnesses of God. It's all false if there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, then there is no Christ. If there is no Christ, then there is no Bible. But then most fatally of all, an unbeliever in the gathering, I'm following your argument. I'm following through your rejection of Jesus Christ and him crucified and buried and rose again and ascended. If there be no Christ and if there be no Bible, then there is no salvation. Verse 16, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Oh, follow through this argument of the rationalist. You who claim that the resurrection is just unbelievable, incredible, nonsense, fairy tale stuff. Follow it through, and this is where we arrive. We arrive at the point of despair. The idea in this word perish. They also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. It is that of utter ruin. Interestingly, in Paul's reasoning, what he is saying is that even if there was no resurrection, even if he concedes that ground to you for a moment, hypothetically, to follow it through, it doesn't mean that there is no problem of sin and evil and wickedness in this world. It doesn't solve the problem of evil. The presence of evil in the world demands justice. It is clear to every single one of you that sin is real. Sin can be evidenced. You have plenty of experience of sin and misery and evil. It can be seen all around us. Every one of you can testify to it. Being still in their sins then, the inevitable outcome is that without any saviour, they will perish in their sins. That's what he's saying. There's no denying sin. Deny the resurrection, you can't deny sin. You deny the resurrection, you lose Christ. You lose the Bible. You lose salvation, but you've still got your sin. What now? Retribution with no, with no Christ. Paul is showing here the utter emptiness of a world without Jesus Christ. What despair. What utter ruin. What worthlessness. Just let this reasoning run through your minds tonight. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then there can be no Christ. And if there is no Christ, then the Bible is not trustworthy. All of this preaching is meaningless. There is no good news. And if there is no good news, then there is no way of salvation. And all of mankind are doomed to ruin and to destruction and to despair. And yet, as you sit here this evening, you know that the world is full of evil. You know that your own heart is prone to sin, that you are so easily tricked into sin. 
All around you, you have evidences of an evil and a sinful and a fallen race of man. All around you see dysfunction and decay. Oh, technology seems to advance. And living standards, they improve. But yet, with all, the moral and the ethical behaviour of the human race becomes increasingly depraved and torrid. It doesn't improve with all these advances, does it? For you who reject the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, my friend, to you tonight, my question is this. Is this all there is? Is this the best that there will ever be? Is this your gospel? Is this despair and ruin, annihilation? Is that the best news that the unbeliever can offer? What a message of despair, of hopelessness, of ruin. We thank God tonight that the heart of unbelief has called this one wrong. There is a resurrection. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And so we notice in the third place tonight the eternal hope of the resurrection. Look at verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Paul now has gone through his logical argument. He has taken your place as an unbeliever and he has followed it through logically, followed out all the implications of the denial of the resurrection to its natural conclusion, and he has found this despairing terminus in the utter uselessness of the entire creation, man and beast, all waste of time, nothing but a clump of atoms. And so he concludes, because he has won his argument. He has won the debate here, friends. And so he concludes it with this. But now is Christ risen from the dead. Amen to that. But now, such emphasis, such heat. What he means is even right now, at this very moment, as you sit here tonight, Christ stands in glory. He is risen from the dead. And when he says risen, he doesn't mean simply that Christ came back to life. No, it means that he rose from the dead once for all, never to die again. That is why Christ is here referred to as the first fruits. He was the first one ever to experience this resurrection. This is a true message of hope, friends. Not of despair. You see, every message, every message from any religion in the world and from you with no religion at all, every message without this resurrection of Christ is a message devoid of all hope. Why is there hope in the resurrection? There is hope because God accepted Christ's sacrifice. Look at verse 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as an animal die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul's referring here to that mission that Christ came to fulfill as the second Adam that we considered just a few weeks ago. He's speaking of Christ standing in the place of the field Adam and succeeding. Remember what's alluded to in verse 15 when Paul was talking about what they preached. He says that the apostles have testified of God that he raised up Christ. God raised up Christ. Now we know that in scripture 
We read of Christ taking his own life to himself again. We're told that expressly. But we're also told this, that God raised him up. In Acts 13, we read that God raised him up from the dead. In Acts 17, we're told that he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. God gives you a token, a seal, a promise that Christ's work was acceptable because he has raised him from the dead. The resurrection then was a proof of the acceptability of the work of Christ. Proof that our redemption has been accomplished. The doctrine of the resurrection then is not simply the happy ending of some fairy tale. No, it's the pivotal doctrine of the acceptability of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for his elect people. But further than that, there is hope because Christ is now reigning. Verse 25, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. You see, the resurrection is inseparably connected with the ascension of Christ. Once Christ came back from the dead, there was no stopping him. He must ascend. He must reign. The ascension, in turn, is welded to that kingly session at the right hand of God. This is what the psalmist foretold in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The apostle is saying then that now, at this very moment, the risen body of Jesus Christ is sitting on his throne in heaven. He is reigning over his church, reigning over his gospel kingdom. Far from being a defeated man, he's a triumphant, a risen, a living, ascended and reigning saviour. We serve the risen Christ. And he reigns over his people who are willing to be ruled. The psalmist says of him in Psalm 68, Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Those gifts are what? Well, they're the gifts of the gospel, the blessings of the covenant of grace, the pardon of our sins, the adoption into the family of God, the inheritance of the saints in glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Paul puts it in another place. But then finally we see that there is hope because Christ is coming again. Look at verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Here we have Paul describing something of an order in the resurrection. Christ was the first to be raised. But that in itself implies that there are more to come. And so there will be. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. There's an allusion here where Christ is called the first fruits to the feast of the first fruits in the Old Testament. Christ having made the sacrifice of his life, offered himself up to God on the day of the slaying of the Paschal Lamb. In the first day of the week, following the Jewish Sabbath, was the day in which the first fruits were to be offered. The day in which Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits of them that believe. Again, then, we see here, as we have in recent days, that the resurrection of Christ is a fulfillment of one of those Old Testament types. 
Oh, there's no mistakes or accidents in the scripture. But the key thought here again is that of the unity of believers with Christ. All that the incarnate Son of God has accomplished, he has accomplished on behalf of his people. So that they could follow after. As he was raised, so they will be raised. As he entered into the presence of God, so they will enter into the presence of God. There is that spiritual resurrection that, that believers enjoy and enter into immediately after they are regenerated. We, are, we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. So there's a spiritual resurrection that happens immediately. We have spiritual life as soon as we are regenerated. But here, here we have the final hope. The greatest triumph which is yet to come. The resurrection of Christ is the earnest. It's the seal. It's the guarantee that when he returns, they that are Christ's will also be raised body and soul and glorified with Christ. Later in this chapter, Paul describes that resurrection in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal put on immortality. This, then, is the eternal hope of the resurrection. Look at how verse 24 begins, though. Then, after the resurrection of the saints, then cometh the end. The doctrine of the resurrection is no sideshow of the gospel. It is a pivotal doctrine without which there would be no gospel. In the meeting tonight, for believers, there's hope here for you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is your guarantee of the success of his propitiation for your sins. You know your sins are forgiven because Christ rose from the dead. God accepted him. Divine justice was satisfied and the resurrection was the proof of it. That Christ died for you, that he was raised for you and that he is coming again for you. What glorious truths they are. What a comfort to the child of God. What a motivation, what an encouragement, what a blessed assurance. Christ is risen. But for the unbeliever, then cometh the end. You may resist the doctrine of the resurrection, but you only resist it because it is clear to you that this doctrine tells you, and you know it to be true, that you will stand at that day when Christ comes, body and soul, you will stand before him. And then cometh the end. But what of you? What will become of your resurrected body when it's reunited, reunited with your soul in judgment? What becomes of you then? What does the end mean for you, friend? Tonight, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the risen, conquering saviour from sin, he is the only hope for you in the resurrection. But he is the eternal hope for all who will trust in him. For every one who trusts in that finished work that was shown to be acceptable to God by his resurrection. That Christ came. That he lived. 
that he suffered and died, these are gospel truths. But that he rose again from the dead is of pivotal significance. Because he rose again, because Jesus Christ now lives, we can now say that we have the good news. We have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word and we thank Thee, Lord, for these solemn and searching truths. We pray, O God, for those in the gathering who reject the doctrine of the resurrection, that Thy, O God, would awaken them to their peril. Show them, O Lord, their hopelessness. Show them their peril. Show them, Lord, that their soul stands to be reunited with their body again in the next life before the judgment bar of God. But, O Lord in heaven, we pray that thou would awaken them this night to the hope that there is of an eternal resurrection in Christ. O that thou would win sinners to thyself. Lord, thou art able to awaken them. Thou art able to cause the scales of blindness to fall from their eyes. O do it tonight, we pray. Have mercy on perishing sinners. And Lord, for we who have closed with Christ, we who have been born again, we who know ourselves to have been accepted in heaven, justified freely by thy grace, because Christ has risen again and ascended and reigns, and because Christ will come again for us, help us, O Lord, to be filled with this hope, for our, our faith to be strengthened, for our souls to rejoice within us, Help us, O Lord, to be, to be at peace concerning those who we know to have been in the faith who have gone before us, that they are not perished, that they are safe in Christ. And Lord, for ourselves, as we walk through this pilgrimage here below, as we suffer all the trials and the hardships, as we see the wickedness and the evil, as we battle with sin ourselves in our own bosoms, Help us, O Lord, to be emboldened by this truth. Death is not the end. There's a heaven to come. O lift our hearts, we pray unto thee. And Lord, we pray that thy word would be a blessing to every soul, to every soul, that there would be a savour here of life unto life. But O Lord, if there be a savour of death unto death, we submit to thee. Come then, Lord, we pray. Bless us as we sing thy praise. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll conclude this evening from Psalm 72. Uh, Psalm 72, singing from verse 15 to the end of the psalm. Psalm 72 from verse 15 Yea, he shall live, and given to him shall be of Sheba's gold. For him still shall they pray, and he shall daily be extolled. Of corn and handful in the earth, on tops of mountains high, with prosperous fruit shall shake like trees on Lebanon that be. The city shall be flourishing, her citizens abound, in number shall like to the grass that grows upon the ground. His name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in, in him, and blessed all nations that shall him call. Now blessed be the Lord our God, 
the God of Israel. For he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity. The whole earth let his glory fill. Amen. So let it be. Psalm 72, singing these words to God's praise. Stand and we'll ask the Reverend Farms to give the benediction.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.